Each of you in the House Republican Conference is on the front lines defending American freedom, American security, American prosperity, and the American way of life. You're the ones you're doing the defense. Hundreds of millions of our fellow citizens are counting on us. And so help us, God, we will never, ever let them down. For months, we've been saying we're doing three things. We are legislating, we're investigating, as six committees had been doing for months. We are litigating. The president needs a secretary of state who is the chief diplomat who is out executing on behalf of the country. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So I just got back from San Jose, California, and I'm going to have to Thomas Friedman out a little bit and tell you about my taxi driver. His name was John Curley, and he told me he moved to Santa Clara from Connecticut to go to UCSC. A few years ago, when Trump was on The Apprentice, John told me he drove Trump around and occasionally had Keith Schiller, Trump's old bodyguard, in the car, too. All right, now talk about unverified random rumor, but John reports that he was asked to stock the car with 10 packs of antiseptic wipes, three containers of white Tic Tacs, and three containers of, yes, green Tic Tacs. John was then struck when he heard the Access Hollywood tape about how Trump Tic Tacs it up before sexually assaulting women. He said no Tic Tacs were used on that trip. The other thing John reported that happened when he drove Trump around is that Trump brought a huge souvenir from his apprentice appearance home with him. One of those giant 2D life-size cardboard likenesses of himself. That's right. Trump brought one of those big things in the car with him, so John had to look in the rearview mirror and see two Trumps on the whole ride to the airport. Okay, so John is smart and sane, and thus, of course, despises Trump. But the thing he said last most surprised me. Trump, John said, is such a persuasive guy. He could talk anyone into doing anything. Ah! If I get carted off to happy farms like Francis Farmer one day, singing the theme to The Apprentice, money, 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 you will all know it's because I was never able to learn what is remotely seductive about a hideous, subliterate non-mammal who lugs around a cardboard replica of himself and gasses up with Tic Tacs before he lurches at people and grabs their crotches. That just doesn't say charm to me. That says cross street to avoid and if forced to encounter, laugh in face. But somehow, even after the Tic Tac thing and the gross wipes and life-size image of himself, shrewd, insightful John was able to find Donald Trump persuasive? The great mystery of life persists. Hate him or hate him, and you should definitely hate him. People find Trump bewitching. Today, my guest is Molly McHugh, calling in from Taiwan, where she is addressing the Oslo Freedom Forum. Molly, as you all may know, is one of my best friends, and her familiarity with Kremlin tactics as a political analyst who worked in Ukraine for a long time has made her uniquely well-positioned to recognize how certain beloved American poses, including, she says, the pose of honor, are powerless against someone like Putin or Trump. I'm going to talk to Molly about why more men who should know better, Mattis, Bolton, McMaster, the big warrior dudes with stripes and medals, are also 
unable to stand up to Trump, to testify to his unfitness and help get him out. They, too, can't, evidently, stand up to the indomitable, irresistible G-force electromagnetic powers of persuasion of the man who can't climb stairs but needs six packs of Tic Tacs, OCD wipes, and a cardboard image of himself just to feel emotionally whole. Joining me on the line is Molly McHugh. Molly, thank you so much for coming back on Trumpcast. Thanks for having me. Especially because you're in Taiwan. What are you doing in Taiwan where it's much later than it is here? 12 hours time difference, but I'm not sure which day one way or the other. (laughs) (laughs) I can never figure out that dateline. All I know is on the way home, you get back like before you left and it's like, oh, weird. It's just like being on the plane in the Twilight Zone and you land and there's dinosaurs and it's fine. (laughs) No, I'm in in Taiwan for their Taiwan version of the Oslo Freedom Forum that's hosted by the Human Rights Foundation. And they do these fantastic conferences all over the world that have the most interesting and eclectic mix of people. I'm always the most boring person person at their events when I come, I feel like. But it's activists and artists and uh, technology people and all of these incredibly cool people that are fighting to change the systems that they live in in incredibly interesting um, and innovative ways. Is there a theme for this? There's never really a theme, but right now, since we're in Taiwan, there's obviously a ton of attention on Hong Kong and some of the protest leaders from Hong Kong are here. Um, And I'm really looking forward to talking to them tomorrow um, because what they're doing is so innovative and so incredibly brave. And it is such a fantastic example of sort of a leaderless protest movement, quote unquote, but that is so effectively organized and Hmm. that they've done so well with symbolism. And, uh, you know, their, their protests routinely get somewhere between 20 and 50 percent of actual Hong Kongers in the street protesting, which is absolutely incredible. I haven't heard anything about how the organization works. I mean, is it non really non-hierarchical? And and what and tell me about the symbolism, too. Well, it's not necessarily non-hierarchical. It's just it isn't a charismatic protest group. Right. So there's not the one guy at the top who, like, drums up the dudes and gets everybody out in the streets. There's sort of a collective um, that were different groups that have come together, but it's all people who have day jobs, who do other things, and they've really done a really good job of putting together this group with some artists, some, some technology people, some other things. But they have purposefully tried to leave it as a non-led movement for a whole variety of reasons, and it's just the way that they've managed to put it together is just so incredibly cool and sophisticated There was this great example this week of some of the things that they're doing. Part of the group, because there are all these great young artists, are musicians. And so they wrote a sort of new national anthem for Hong Kong. Wow. And it's on YouTube. You can find it. I think there was an article written on it in Reuters or something yesterday as well. But um, it's in Chinese, obviously. But it's sort of this very aspirational, forward-looking song about and it sounds very anthony but um you know this is the hong kong we want this is the world we want to be in we want to be part of this and they did this very cool video of musicians playing the thing showing a lot of the footage that they've done from the protests like the incredible drone footage that just shows like every street in hong kong sort of full of umbrellas but it's so well done and within like two days of doing this video all these videos are coming up on YouTube, which I'm sure there's some algorithm somewhere that the Chinese are trying to like shred of, you know, people will be in shopping malls. There's a ton of malls in Hong Kong. And all of a sudden, everybody will just stop and someone will start singing the song and then everybody's singing the song. And it's like the spontaneous sort of self-protest moment. Wow. But it's so it's the, the aspirational aspect of that is so critical where it's not even people who don't go to the streets for the protests because mm-hmm. they know how dangerous it is. 
uh, to sort of evade the surveillance state technology when you're doing these types of protests, um, are willing to stop in a shopping mall and sing the song because they really do feel like the last 20 years have created parallel systems in Hong Kong. You have this international city sitting on top of an increasingly China-ified system uh, of oppression of locals. And um, it's just, it's fascinating to see what's going on. And I think the, the, just sort of the baseline of that, of how the protest groups have sort of developed techniques and tactics to defeat yeah. surveillance state technology is fascinating to watch. I'm sure every special operations group in the world is sort of trying to analyze what they're doing because it's, it's that innovative. Yeah. Um, and I think just the, just the use of the umbrellas, which are partially a defeat surveillance tactic, um, and partially sort of a symbol of the, the original protest movement a few years ago. Um, but it's just the, it ends up being a very powerful visual of what this is about. And I just think it's an incredibly cool movement. Basically, nobody has said anything about it. I think our president's lame answer when asked about it was like, well, I really hope it works out, especially for China. And because uh, <laughs> he clearly doesn't know what's going on right. or what Hong Kong was uh, to begin with. Um but I, it just, it's one of those moments where I'm just looking at what's happening and you sort of look around and it's just, where is everybody? Like, where is the support for a, 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 a perfect case study, peaceful protest movement that has been so successful and has such a point to make? And they have five very clear demands um, and none of them are irrational or unreasonable. Yeah. Um, and you see that this is all just building toward a moment when... Uh, China feels like enough pressure is off of them that they can just crush it. Uh, and uh, they're not there yet, but you can feel it coming. And um, that would be tragic because if there's ever been a movement that has worked for this, it's these guys. What does the movement want from the international community? Part of their challenge is that if you're comparing it to the Maidan, for example, I think Ukrainians very early on understood the importance of international support and immediately got a couple of pretty Ukrainian girls who speak real good English and put them on YouTube. And it was like, oh, my God, the Maidan is something we all want to be a part of because there's pretty girls. <laughs> and it's really it was a cheap tactic, but it worked really well. Right. Yeah. And because um, everybody's like suddenly very interested in Ukraine. And I think this is the, Euro, the movement here. Euro Maidan means like maiden. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was well. In, in most places, it's sort of like a freedom square type type situation. Oh, I see. Okay, these were the demonstrators in uh, 2013. Yes, the huge demonstrations in Ukraine that resulted from Yanukovych, then President Yanukovych, backing away from signing a deal with the EU that would have drawn Ukraine closer to the West, um, sort of betraying his uh, overt alliances to Russia even further. Um, and the huge civil uprising that happened afterward um, that was organized, again, by a, a very well-organized group of civil movements. Um, civil, it was sort of a combination of civil society, of more radical groups, of other things. Um, but just sort of everybody moved into the main square and stayed there until um, Yanukovych was gone. For our purposes at Trumpcast, this is a moment of high collaboration between Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, and Viktor Yanukovych. So, I mean, these yep. these things have reverberations. We, You know, you have Maidan versus the oligarch Yanukovych, Kremlin-aligned oligarch plus Trump-aligned Paul Manafort, Republican operative. And now in Hong Kong, Trump has not. I guess he's sort of thrown in with key, but he just doesn't know what's going on. 
I don't think he knows what's going on one way or the other. And I think in his head, when the word China flashes, it's like, oh, there's a big bag of money that I want. <laughs> so it's so interesting. I don't know if you remember, because it seems like 5,000 years ago now. But like the first call with an international anything that Trump did after he was elected, someone somehow from his campaign managed to get a call with like Taiwan as like one of the first calls. That's right. That's right. There was something really like everything. There was something mysterious about why that was or not mysterious, but shady about why that was the first call. Yeah. And clearly it was one of the goons around him was like trying to get money from Hong Kong and set up this call or whatever. Who knows? But everybody was sort of like, oh, well, that would actually be kind of cool if he decided if, like maybe he did it on purpose. Maybe he will stand up to China. Like maybe there is cause behind this madness which obviously turned out to be completely false. But I think Taiwan also had that moment of sort of hope of, hey, maybe we'll actually, okay, we may not think this guy is the greatest guy, but like maybe this guy will actually do stuff for us. And that is, I think, dissolved. But this bizarre non-China policy circus that the White House sits over is not great for the small nations that are trying to remain independent of China. (laughs) (laughs) I want to get to, I will just admit to listeners that you and I basically talk all the time. Absolutely. And I hugely appreciate your perspective on things and often feel like you kind of set my thinking straight. And one of the things you remind me and our other friend Karen Schwartz about a lot is this no white horses idea that one by one, we've sort of pinned our hopes, not on protesters, and I mean, during the Trump administration, but on these kind of alpha male figures that swagger in everyone from, I have to say, Robert Mueller, Karen doesn't like it when we say a word against him, but uh, Robert Mueller to John Bolton and so on. And I've never, ever seen you get excited about any one of these guys. Mattis. Nope. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, I want you to talk about no white horses. I'm going to call your attention, and this is somewhat more relevant to your experience in Taiwan. Jennifer Rubin at The Washington Post tweeted, it remains a mystery why McMaster, Bolton, Coates, Mattis, Kelly, and Rex Tillerson don't come before the Congress to explain to the American people that the president is unfit. If they think that will disturb allies, they're mistaken. Our allies already know. Our allies basically already are disturbed, as you well know. But why do these guys, like Mattis, sneaking out the door to promote his book, or Bolton now, who knows what he's going to do next, why do they not just tell us what they know? No. I mean, they've been at least (laughs) witnesses. They must have their eye on their legacy. Why are they not going before Congress, as Jennifer says? I wish I had a better answer for that. I do think there's this, everybody has their own, especially in the Washington stratas, you know, they have their own sort of code of conduct that they operate under. And I think for the military guys, for Mattis, for Kelly, um, it's a little bit different. And I think we as civilians sort of dismiss it too much. But when you're a career military officer, you have spent most of your life operating under a code of conduct where you do not, or in theory at least, you do not involve yourself in politics and you certainly don't speak against the commander-in-chief. You hear a lot of people making fun of this or sort of saying, well, Mattis was a civilian at the end, like he was serving as a civilian, why doesn't he speak out? And there's an aspect to this code of conduct that you never get away from, where for the rest of your life, you're sort of subject to the uniform code of military justice. Mm-hmm. And I think for them, it's, it's, it's a very different thought process about how they make those declarations. I know that the criticism for Mattis is, you know, he's promoting his book and on a book tour. So what are you promoting if you have nothing to say? But I think those guys kind of deserve to be in a different category. For Mueller, I feel like he thinks he did his job, dropped the report, Mm -hmm. and made it very clear that other people needed to do things with it, and they haven't. 
But I think this sort of logic of the before Trump broke everything system of here's my job. I did my job. Everybody else needs to do their job. Mm-hmm. Um, this no longer works. It certainly doesn't work in the United States. There's plenty of places mm-hmm. in the world where that also doesn't work, but nobody gets to stay in their little box and said, I did what I was supposed to do. It's somebody else's job to finish this. We are now mm-hmm. in a situation where institutions are breaking down, where confidence in government is eroding. Um, and anybody who thinks that they can follow some code of conduct for themselves and feel good about it after everything else burns down when they could have done something else is mistaken. And they probably just don't understand that yet because most of them are used to living in countries where things work and there's another election and then things get better and who knows. But we're not in that situation anymore. We're really close to being in a state of permanent national crisis at this point. Yeah. And I just don't think everybody is aware of this because they don't work in states where you watch governments be captured, watch institutions fail, uh, watch how this process works. But we're in the middle of this process. And you see bits of it. People like Bolton sort of getting thrown into the chipper are, are like the high-level versions of things that we see. But the institutional erosion is very serious. Mm. Scientists fleeing from government agencies because they no longer have a purpose being there since facts don't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, The number of of career civil servants that have left um, jobs that require a lifetime of training and expertise to do them well. These aren't just people who push paper around like that expertise really matters. And um, I don't, I have, I mean, Elizabeth Warren, I think, put out a plan that was sort of a recruitment plan to get people back to the State Department. Mm. But we need something that detailed for like every government agency. Mm. How do you get back the people that have left and are now getting paid more in the private sector? You know, how do you get scientists to come back into the government to do jobs that are less glamorous than academic gigs they could get? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we do this? And nobody has a plan for restoring the functioning of our government. And I don't think anybody really understands how deep the misfunction of the Trump administration has cut into those agencies under the incredibly incompetent cabinet secretaries that he has. Maybe because, you know, September 11th, the 18th anniversary yesterday, I was thinking about all the talk among Republicans, especially on the far right, about being Flight 93 Republicans, right? They were like Mm -hmm. going to, if Obama represented such a grave danger to the United States, the national character of whatever it is, white men or whatever they felt was so imperiled under Obama, that they were meant to just go completely off script and start throwing things at the hijack jackers, whatever that meant. And Trump, you know, Trump seems to be a pretty, you know, chaotic candidate. There's a kind of anarchist Hail Mary to having him at the top of the ticket. But when that happens, if they go full flight 93, that sounds good when it's, you know, just one or two people. But as you say, there are institutions around who are not used to everybody going off protocol, especially these older guys, Marines, who as you say, expect to be able to stay in their lane and more than that, see heroism as staying in their lane. Here's the thing that always, and I think I've said this on our thread, I pretty much never fail to get into my mind the words of Steve Bannon, what he said about Mueller, never send a Marine to do a hitman's job. 
So that, you know, we civilians look at Mahler or people that did tours in Vietnam and people who were decorated and say, these people are so tough. They're so heroic. They'll definitely be able to stand up to Trump. But we're missing that this isn't by any means necessary uh, Trump takedown. This is just executing on a very, very specific and narrow set of mandates and protocols. This is not a time... It's not a time for honorable men. And I think that's the problem. Wow. The illusion that lifts from your eyes when you spend too much time working against the Kremlin is the idea that that rules based systems can stand up to thugs and hitmen like Putin. And it, it sucks, but it's the it's the fundamental challenge to everyone in the region who has tried to work against the Kremlin. How do you work against somebody who doesn't care about your rules? It's the mm-hmm. challenge we have as the United States trying to push back systemically against what Russia is doing around the world. And guess what? No one has the answer because Putin has paid zero cost for what he's done. Yeah. And I think people like Bannon really watch that and embrace it and understand it. Um, you know, if you can be outside the rules, you can pretty much do whatever you want because people are still stuck in their rules, like trying to figure out what to do to respond to you. And it will fail. And he knows that because he reads all of this crazy anarchist, you know, black swan stuff. Yeah. And um, and and understands the power in some of how this works. And I just think mm. there have been many honorable men that have tried and many dishonorable men, too. But many honorable men that have believed that they could uh, honorable in their own way, even people like Bolton, who you may not like, and you may not agree with, like he came from a place where it sort of made sense to him what the place was, Mm -hmm. who have thrown themselves against the rocks of Trump and just come off shredded to bits. Wow. And um, without really accomplishing much in terms of protecting the American people in any way from the destruction of this presidency. So I want to talk about all the failures. I'm also going to propose that there's been one very minor success, and um, he's gotten in a lot of trouble for it, and that's James Comey. Now, everybody hates James Comey. Everybody does hate James Comey. He's certainly a prig in many ways, but it is crazy. I mean, once the IG report came out that he that they thought he had violated protocol in a number of ways, and Rod Rosenstein um, piled on um, to say Comey was wrong in this, in this instance, and, you know, essentially... I mean, missing the forest for the trees downplays the catastrophic background against which Comey was making fairly minor and useful and dignified moral decisions, namely to show his notes about this obstruction of justice meeting he had with Trump to a a journalist. And, okay, maybe that's not done under ordinary circumstances. We are so far away from ordinary circumstances that that actually seems like just a minor assertion of conscience. Yes. And that's the kind of thing we'd actually like to see way more of. Just inventive thinking, interesting thinking, not in lockstep, that recognizes that we are off the script, that Madison, Mueller don't have anything in their history that suggests how they should respond in this situation. I think that's right. And I think that with Comey, there was even the one extra step, which wasn't that he showed his notes to a journalist. He showed his notes to a friend who could then discuss them with the journalist. Yes, that's right. Because, that's right. again, he, he had to stay within his own code of ethics but um, yeah. and, and legal rules, obviously. But um, That's a good point. But you're right. I just think there is this lack of imaginative thinking about the environment that we're in, yeah. that the rules don't matter anymore. And I think from... Uh, Early 2015, but certainly mid-2015, looking back, everything we've learned since the election, understanding 
what the Obama administration knew, what they did, what they didn't do, you know, every, I think the thing that no one in the United States has yet wrapped their heads around, really, other than a few of us who are completely cynical about everything, but (laughs) is that every institution, every institution that is meant to protect the American people in some way, totally failed in 2016, completely failed, whether it be the intelligence community, the FBI, the White House, uh, elements of defense that are supposed to look at this, the State Department, the legislators, yes. uh, senators and congressmen, the media who all had the mm-hmm. freaking steel dossier and didn't do anything with it mm-hmm. because it was more interesting to talk about what Trump was tweeting that morning. Um, and Ivanka's sort of nice to them sometimes, so why say something mean? <laughs> like, but every institution that is supposed to exist, governmental or non-governmental, to sort of, you know, provide transparency or protect the American public failed yeah. and completely failed. And no one has owned that. And every time you see one of these Obama goons online talking about all the great things they did against Russia and how Trump is so terrible, I just want to strangle them. Because the reason we are where we are is eight years of Obama getting Russia wrong and the mm-hmm. open battlefield mm-hmm. that they left for Putin to walk into. And I think the the Russians knew so successfully how to play what was happening within the administration to push them to the point of indecision and inaction the way they had done before on other issues. And that's where we got to, where they looked at all the intelligence and they said, oh, gosh, we'll call Putin and tell him to knock it off. Are you kidding me? Hmm. Great. That's hmm. fantastic. Yeah. But we're still there. We're still in this moment of every institution is failing to respond to the threats to the American public. Um, well, there's a few that are actually trying to do some quiet things now, but that's not the same thing as providing a public response. And um, I just don't think we've overcome this yet. Are there any other among the individuals that we might have expected to do better? And, you know, there's a lot to be said for the some of the Mueller report is just magisterial and he got so many indictments. And we can't say that that investigation was a wash, whatever the legislature decides to do with it. But figures like McMaster, who... You know, first he seemed to knuckle under to Trump and making the big presentation around the Comey firing. Um, But his I thought and I imagine you agree that his sort of parting words at the uh, I think he was at a meeting of Baltic leaders. Right. And he described the Russian attack in sort of no uncertain terms and made it clear that he thought Trump's response. Well, that Trump was somewhat complicit. Then goodbye, McMaster. That's all we got. Yeah. Then. I, I don't know. Maybe he's working on a book also. I think he's back, probably back in some nice cushy scholarly gig somewhere, which is where he came from in the first place, uh, having retired from the military previously. Would you have expected something else from him? Is he is he in the same category? I mean, he's, he's slightly younger than some of these guys. I mean, why couldn't he as as a national security advisor? I, I just, you know, I feel like I have a broken record. Why I don't not know. this guy? Why couldn't no, this you're, guy stand you're not. up? You know, I just, I still am I'm constantly amazed that Omarosa seems to have done a better job of standing up to these people than Madison McMaster. But anyway, <laughs> where's McMaster? Seriously, her book is amazing. But where, where are any of these people? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, it's the constant, why do you choose silence in this environment? And there's a lot of answers to that. It's extremely costly to say anything. Um, both personally, financially, reputationally, whatever, when you're in this kind of environment, mm-hmm. even if you have supporters, and obviously there'll be people who cheer you on, there is an incredibly corrosive cost to standing against people like this. And it is relentless and terrible, and it is not very fun. And a lot of people just don't want to do it. Okay, yeah. fine, if that's how you decide to do it. 
to some extent, even Tillerson has finally, like years after, said more than some of the others about mm-hmm. how ridiculous it was to work for this administration and how Trump is not probably the most fit president that has ever occupied the chair. Um, but it's the silence is really deafening. And as Jennifer Rubin said, where are all these people and why don't they sit together and talk about this in a way that makes it really hard for people to push back? And I think if you work in Washington and or work with the U.S. government in any way, you'll see these little examples of how frayed everything is around the edges. And on foreign policy in particular, the huge swaths of things where there just isn't anybody in charge. So that means either nothing is happening or things just drift on as they were. So maybe that seems fine to people. Um, Or, you know, one young, inexperienced opportunist in a weird, sort of slightly relevant job can just sort of take over that policy portfolio and do weird opportunistic things, which has always worked so well in the past. Um, But it's just the chaos at every level. The most frequent question we get from people when we're overseas, other than what the fart is going on in Washington these days, um, is who the hell did we talk to when we go? And I was having a conversation about that with some of our Taiwanese friends today who, um, you know, and the example that I that I referenced back to because it was sort of my first, you know, big working or trying to work with the administration thing when I was in Washington um, was the first think tank that I worked at. We ran this big Arab democracy project um, sort of after the Iraq war when these opinions had started coming out that. You know, these Arabs are never going to be ready for democracy. What do they know about civil society? Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started bringing in all of these really smart Arabs who had been working in their own countries on uh, sort of civil society movements and promoting democracy, building some context for democracy to happen within their countries. Mm-hmm. And um, they would come and talk at conferences, but we would bring them around to everybody in the administration that they needed to talk to so that they had exposure to these ideas. Mm-hmm. And that list was huge in the Bush administration because you had not only only the NSC staff who worked on these issues, but the presidential speechwriters who were real people who engaged in policy, mm-hmm. who wanted this context for themselves. And then Cheney had his own parallel NSC, essentially. So you had to meet with the vice presidential people and those speechwriters. And then you had to go to the Pentagon and meet with the policy people and the Pentagon speechwriters who were, again, smart policy people mm-hmm. and the relevant State Department people because you kind of had to check that box. And then you would go to the Hill and meet the dozens of people who cared about these issues and who were engaged in the idea of promoting freedom in the world. But if you look at that list now, for anybody going to D.C., you're damn lucky if there's one guy left at the State Department manning a desk somewhere that you can kind of go check the box with. Or like maybe somebody you kind of know at the Pentagon or somebody who's sort of assigned to overseeing your thing. But it's just the lack of people to talk to, unless you're lucky enough to still have someone who's an advocate for your issue, if it's arms control or whatever, within the administration. But just there's nobody to pick up and call if you have, even if they, I mean, even if it's an administration where they totally disagree with you on whatever your issues are, there's nobody for people to engage. And it's just like, what the hell do we do? And nobody has an answer to that. Okay, this thing where honor and even protocols like the ones you just described tilts into cowardice, um, or it, at least into sort of um, paralysis. You know, that's that's what a constitutional crisis looks like. I mean, that's the first. I mean, I, I still can't remember. Are we? 
we're still in a na- couple of national emergencies and a constitutional crisis, right? Like that's the the overarching idea is that we're in some form of paralysis with Barr and everyone else defying subpoenas just willy-nilly and nobody seeming to enforce them with all the evidence in the world that the president committed um, or, or should be indicted for 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 high crimes and yet nobody acting on that. Um, that feels like a crisis. But the paralysis that you're describing, just even on issues that are not top of mind for anyone, um, is, it, you know, it's like I reach the limits of my thinking. I don't know. I don't know what an imaginative act mm-hmm. um, would look like. I mean, you know, it's when you start, and I think we've we've talked about that this in our in our foxhole. You know, you start to think maybe we do need Marianne Williamson, <laughs> you know, just someone who's just saying something. That sounds completely different from everyone else. Are there any other evidence? To but, but not Marianne Williamson. Not yeah, Marianne yeah. Williamson. No, don't. Everyone needs. And, and also, I, I back down from my brief interest in Yang. Also, I promise I'm not for him either. I mean, it is, it is, it is um, heartening to think. I know. It, I just want my thousand dollars a month. Okay, can you blame me? Uh, it is heartening to think that Elizabeth Warren has um, is t- thinking about how to rebuild and 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 how to attract talent because recruitment is going to be very difficult in a state department yeah. going forward. Um, I mean, the the level of demoralization there is, is so high. It's the it's the thing that that the government always does the worst. I mean, government recruiting is ridiculous for anybody who's ever sought a government job as a non political appointed or drafted person after a, an election. You know. It's ridiculous. You know, you send in things through this ridiculous system of things. And like 10 months later, they'll send you a letter like, hey, we're still considering your application. And who what sane person can wait for that kind of hiring process? And they, they have, uh, and now they have Jared a, do your background check with a crayon or whatever. And, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and that's the thing for a lot of people, even very talented people who are recruited, especially younger people coming out of school who are recruited into to various agencies where you need security clearances. The weight on the clearances for non-priority hires is ridiculous, and those people will wait for you know a year, twelve months, or twelve months, sixteen months for for their clearances to come through. A lot of the time, and sometimes they can work before then, sometimes not. But I mean, what normal human can just be like, "Hey, mom and dad, I have a job, but not yet. I'm just going to come home and live with you for a while." Right. I mean, it's just it's it's nonsense. Yeah. So I, I think it, in general, the government doesn't do this well, and having to do it far more than they've probably ever had to do it. Mm. I just don't think anybody is focused on this. Like, mm. no one is focused on on the fact that after this presidency, so much will need to be rebuilt and replaced and de-Kool-Aidified within the administration. Uh, it'll take a decade to unravel what they've done to data, just uh, and, uh, and just like all the statistics that they've deleted and destroyed and per- you know purposefully polluted. Um, like we don't even have data anymore. Let's just not collect the data because if we collect it, then we have to know things, and it's better not to. Yes, CDC. Um, and there's been like a few little examples. Right? Yeah, exactly. There's been a few little examples of these things that become stories for a minute. But you see, it's sort of the tips of the icebergs of things that we know must be much, much worse. Mm-hmm. And just not looking and just not doing things is the most effective way to just like gut most of these agencies because then they have no purpose to exist anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, why why fund them? We can just take that money and go build a wall somewhere or something. Yes. I want to ask you before I I let you go um, about lessons from Russia, because you told us lots of people who knew their way around around the Kremlin told us, um, including Bill Browder, that um, Trump would be completely a new creature that we would not be able 
to deal with in ordinary ways. And one way that Browder put it, and I think this is very interesting, is when someone works on micro and macro ways in bribes and blackmail, so the micro way, I'm sure you're familiar with this. I've just been, it's been a crash course in it over the last three years, but the way that that Michael Cohen describes it, you know, that and, and I think John D. Domenico, our Trump impressionist, says this, that Trump's first words to you are often, isn't it a great day? Isn't it beautiful? You look great. You're amazing. You're a 10. You're fantastic. You know, you're great. So you're like kind of pumped up on this bribe thing. And then he's starting to blackmail you at the same time, starting to, you know, get the get the better of you. Browder says that when you leave Putin's office, you're essentially he's already got 12 things on you. You know, he's already sent Basically. you. I think Craig Unger <laughs> said, you know, he he did a piece on one of the oligarchs and who instantly sent him, you know, something like, you know, fifty thousand dollars worth of caviar, you know, right after. You're just <laughs> like these gigantic, crazy gifts. And um how you stay clean from that, apparently virtually no one's been able to. That, you know, even if Mattis didn't succumb to cartoonish bribes and blackmail like that, he left thinking on some level that, you know, he was culpable of XYZ and that could come to light if he was too critical of the president or something, something, you know, in some ways he was beholden to the president. And then also that he wanted to continue to enjoy, that's the bribe part, you know, being in the dimbus of the sitting president. Is that roughly how you think Putin works? That grown men become willing to forfeit everything for him for some psychological reason that we still don't totally understand? The, yeah, the, I mean, the Putin system is, is slightly different in that there's the part where you die if you step out of line. <laughs> yes. But but in terms of the the understanding of the rewards of participating in the system, it is a very similar mindset. And I think that there's often the comparisons of oligarchs to, or certainly the Russian system of oligarchy to a mafia state. And I just don't think it's the right comparison mm. in terms of how power actually works. Because in sort of crime family-like situations, there is sort of a grassrootsy element to it, right? You need your foot soldiers who actually do things. And like the collection of money, the breaking of bones, whatever it is, and that sort of all feeds up and everybody takes a cut. And then the guy who sits at the top sort of controls the family, but mm-hmm. everything he has comes from the people beneath him. Yeah. And um, that is the opposite in Russia. Everything you have comes from, from Putin, from uh. his approval of you having the job from the railway stamp that you have been assigned that you collect royalties off of um it you do not get anything if putin doesn't think that you get to have that thing and i just i think that there's trump is not that powerful certainly and certainly not that sophisticated in how he operates I think a lot of these things that he does in terms of how he controls people are extremely instinctual, which is sort of fascinating to watch, Hmm. just that I don't think he consciously does a lot of this stuff. It's just always how he has operated with people and, you know, may not understand the mechanics of it, but it, but it works for him in his like bizarre, dysfunctional brain, slightly not right way. Yeah. Like total inability to have empathy for anything around him type way. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. The fascinating part for me in the United States is watching people decide to, quote, in the German context, working toward Hitler, like the people who understand if you provide things for Trump, you there are benefits of being in the system, even if you haven't been ordered or tasked or asked to do a thing. Hmm. And there are so many people hmm. that are still halfway in that system, even if they're partially out of the system or not really connected to Trump world who kind of understand 
there's benefits and rewards for deciding to participate in the system that he's built. And if you can get into it, it's a pretty good gig. And even if you don't want to be in it all the way, not saying anything about it is still a pretty good gig. Hmm. And um, I just think that everybody needs to drop the illusion that that's okay. That in any aspect, profiteering from having been associated with Trump world or a Trump world whisperer or like we're sort of in, but not really in, you mm. try to explain it's kind of okay when it's not kind of okay at all. Yeah. Like all of this is, is betraying ideals that you should have. And it's not going to be a good historical moment for you when you're looking back on this in the future. Molly, I know that you are not optimistic. I mean, you don't think that we're going to, that, that <laughs> Trump is suddenly going to change course. And I think you're right. Is there anything you can leave us with? Any hint of optimism, any possibility that we'll have a new president in 2020 and rebuild or, or, or that we might have some uprising like in Hong Kong? I certainly hope that there's a new president coming, but I think we all need to look to our own means of creative protest uh, outside of the rules that we're used to operating in and really question what our own honor is. Thank you so much for being here, Molly. Have fun in Taiwan. Excellent. Thanks for having me. My guest has been Molly McHugh, a political analyst, information warfare expert, and all-around galaxy brain. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Write some thoughtful, meditative things to us on the internet. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And hey, if you're still here, why not go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus and be a Slate Plus member if you're not already. There is no day like today. Carpe Slate Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from the great June Thomas. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.